Welcome to the IAB UK podcast. Hello and welcome to the IAB UK podcast. From the IAB, I'm James Chandler. And in this week's episode, I'm in conversation with Dr. Daniel Knapp, Chief Economist at IAB Europe. We talk specifically about his recent paper, The Wider Socioeconomic and Cultural Value of Targeted Advertising in Europe. The paper itself is genuinely as fascinating as our discussion where Daniel makes a compelling case against a Europe-wide blanket ban on targeted advertising. We talk in depth about SMEs who of course rely and thrive on targeted advertising, even going as far to describe them as the backbone of Europe's economy. We get into the role of relevancy, Europe's ability to compete on a global scale with such a ban in place, and why even the term targeted advertising seems to have negative connotations. But I started by asking Daniel to describe his role as IAB Europe's chief economist, in fact, the only chief economist in the entire IAB network. Chief economist at IAB Europe is a fascinating role. No day is the same. Um, The broad remit is to understand how the markets of advertising, the policy of advertising, and shift in consumer behavior all intersect to create new opportunities and also obstacles that the industry can circumnavigate. There's a lot of um, glass ball work in there to do predictions and analysis Mm. to understand how's the market shaping up in five years' time. But it's also about translating this kind of fairly abstract macro knowledge into um, how can companies um, seize the benefits of this? How do they need to adjust their business models? And um, lastly, how do we as an advertising industry reach out to policymakers and um, provide empirical evidence Hmm. um, and arguments that demonstrate the benefits of uh, digital advertising and um, well, I got into, into this role to be um, not a lobbyist, um, <laughs> but to be also a bit of an enfant terrible sometimes, to <laughs> say things as they are um, without having um, a PR department behind me that says, yeah. say this or don't say that. Mm. And it's great fun to be able to freely speak one's mind, of course, always backed up by data and evidence. <laughs> and uh, I assume you were doing this role before the pandemic hit. I mean, ha- I mean, something we could never have predicted, but how different has it been given all of the, I mean, you talked about behavioural change there, and, you know, p- particularly we'll come on to it, businesses moving into e-com a lot quicker than perhaps they anticipated because they could do. How different is your job now to maybe the job you came into pre-pandemic? That was a fun time. I really had to put all the analytical repertoire I had at my disposal um, on the table at once, consult um, past research, open up dusty books to really see how can we make sense of all this. So it was a testing time for an economist, and it was, in a sense, a going back to school time. Mm. But um, I wrote a piece um, um, during the pandemic that was called Forecasting on Quicksand, and um, we realized that this isn't a pandemic like like any old other kind of um, kind of impact on the ad market before, where we could mm. rely on the past as a um, predictor for the future. But we needed to look at many other things, so um, you know, lockdown rates, how quickly economies are opening up, and so mm. forth. So um, I think it was um, also highly educational for me to see 
um, how far can our tools in the industry for analysis and prediction really go? And maybe what other sources of data do we need to tap into in order to understand um, this rapidly shifting landscape? And, and what other sources of data were they, as an example? Um, one of the most fascinating things I came across was the um, Government Stringency Index, mm. um, um, or GSI. We always need a good acronym. Right? <laughs> and the Government Stringency Index was um, scanning through news reports and, um, um, well, policies and measures um, from countries across the globe collated by academics to provide a like-for-like like score of how open or how closed the economy was ah. at a given day in the year, i.e. Mm. which things were possible, which things were not possible. And that allowed us to really infer for which business did it actually make sense to advertise? Mm. For which businesses, well, if everything was shut, they just yeah. had, to, had to lay low. Mm. And this is kind of this type of outside data um, that we brought in and data that was actually an index for the first time created specifically in this um, exceptional environment that we were in. And I mean, it's, it's fascinating because retailers could pivot, you could start doing click and collect, you would bolster up recom stuff, but... I mean, if you're selling flights and holidays, I mean, that's why. Why would you advertise? I guess it's it's a much harder case to uh, it's a much harder case to make. Indeed, and, and actually, we, we we saw businesses themselves keeping an eye on this government's stringency index because um, it was so hard to track. In particular, what are governments doing um, in each European country? Which country can you know? From which country can you travel to? What other country and mm. so forth? So, um, we, what we were using as a predictor businesses themselves were using as a tool, as a decision support wow. tool to decide whether they should now advertise or not. And I remember talking to uh, friends in agencies, planners in agencies who work across uh, EMEA markets and just the complexity of, okay, this is this is opened up in Poland, but this is completely different in Ireland. I mean, it's just this added complexity of, right, turn on here, off here. Okay, we need to do I guess digital in a way kind of held its own because uh, because it is so agile. But it was, um, yeah, f fascinating time. And I uh, and I wonder whether we're to yeah. totally away from that. I mean, we'll, we will have to see around winter. Yeah, and, and one one last thing on this, I think, is um, where the switch on, switch off nature of digital really came to shine with very low lead times. Mm. Um, we could react very very quickly to a rapidly changing uh, landscape. So this is where um, automation. Um, and optimization, I think, really shown and came into play as uh, probably never before. And that leads us nicely to talk about uh, the, the the paper that you've published to give it its um, full title, The Wider Socioeconomic and Cultural Value of Targeted Advertising in Europe. And, and, and in a sense, I suppose, the ability to target your ads to to places, to certain groups, you know, did come into its own in the pandemic. I mean, it would have been very, very different had we not been able to do all of those things. Absolutely. And there were a couple of things coming together. You already mentioned that rapid shift to e-commerce, which, by the way, if we look at retail statistics in the UK and other European countries, these trends are persisting. So we saw um, new spend um, from businesses who often have never advertised before, mm. on, never online, mm. come into the market. And they needed to reach consumers um, that were relevant to them. They didn't have time or money for wastage. They needed to very quickly 
find the right consumers and also bring them to their store and to convert them because, of course, um, the physical stores were closed. And at yeah. the same time, as we all already also discussed, the environment, you know, the, the cards on the table were changing on a weekly or sometimes even a daily basis. So we had to be highly responsive and highly reactive. And that kind of created this perfect storm, actually, for digital advertising. Why, across Europe, we didn't see the digital ad sector decline in 2020, but mm. actually grow by 6.3% versus all other media were down in aggregate around 20%. Yeah. Uh, and t- tell us where this is coming from. I mean, you talk in the paper about um, a, a blanket ban on all targeted advertising. J- just give us the, the top line on, on where this is coming from and perhaps motivations for it. It really sounds like a big specter, doesn't it? Coming, we're just emerging from um, a deep recession, um, mm. trying to come back into the new, new uh, into the new normal. But we're seeing at the same time, well, it's the last year with third-party cookies, and then something else happens. <laughs> this is happening on the regu- regulatory landscape. Mm. So um, we had GDPR, we did privacy, but um, at the end of 2020, the European Commission uh, proposed uh, actually two. Uh, different legislative initiatives um, with which they wanted to upgrade how digital services in the EU are being governed. Mm. There's the Digital Services Act, or the DSA, and the Digital Markets Act, or the DMA. And they're partly overlapping, and they try to kind of regulate different things. Some are, some are more for um, e-commerce, or some intermediaries, and some are more, um, are more applicable to the advertising sector. But it's in particular the DSA that is important for targeted advertising. Mm. So the methods and principles that really help businesses come through the pandemic. And that is, um, the DSA wants to regulate if and how targeted advertising should be possible um, in the EU. And um, although I know we're speaking in the UK environment now, and you know, it's always the question now with new rules in the UK, mm. what's the equivalence with the EU? I think it's very important for UK audiences to want to monitor this very closely. Because there's a group of parliamentarians who, um, in my frank opinion, um, driven by ideological arguments, um, saying there should be a blanket ban on targeted advertising. It mm. shouldn't be possible to target ads anymore at all. I don't know what landscape these parliamentarians imagine instead, how yeah. digital advertising should work, if at all. But this is, of course, a serious threat, not just to the ad industry. The ad industry always evolves. Mm. But it's a serious threat to the businesses that rely on targeted advertising, the SMEs, and we can talk a bit more about why it's not just any old SMEs, but particular sectors that are at, yeah. at stake here. So it's very, you know, it comes at a time when the European industry is just recovering from mm. this pandemic. Um, and suddenly there are talks about banning uh, targeted advertising. And what I did in my paper was to say, let's take a step back. Um, let's do... Realpolitik, as the Germans say. Um, let's look at things pragmatically. Let's put away these ideological arguments, these you know, tropes of surveillance capitalism and others which are inevitably circling around them and just say, um, this isn't just about advertising. 
um, but it's about something much broader, mm. how Europe can recover from the pandemic and how businesses in Europe can thrive and compete on, on, an, on an international stage. And this was really what the paper was about. You, you mentioned there particular sectors, particular types of SMEs uh, that would be really heavily impacted by this. Uh, g- give us a flavour of what those sectors might be. I mean, perhaps there's some obvious ones, but um, there's the, the certainly, you know, some that bigger that could survive on, you know, more broadcast things if you have a product or a service that appeals to lots of people, but it's it's not the case for all. Exactly. So um, overall, to say, even the European Commission says that SMEs are, and I quote, the backbone of the European economy. We have 84 million people, um, and that is, I think, in the EU 28, so mm. let's include the UK in here, employed in SMEs. And on average, in the EU 27, I think, it's around 56% um, of contribution to GDP, which comes wow. from SMEs. Wow. So that's massive. But... In Europe, SMEs are also connected to sectors which are worthy of cultural protection and which have a certain social relevance. Number one, there is the tourism sector. Mm. Um, We see, um, and it's a great study um, 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 by, um, I think, Danata and uh, Sojourn, I hope I I pronounced those correctly, which were looking at the um, travel sector. And they said that it's predominantly SMEs that are putting their budgets towards digital advertising to acquire hotel customers, mm. to make them come to their local markets, mm. to promote local towns and so forth. Yes, they are the big um, travel advertisers, but that's not everything. Yeah. SMEs are advertising as well to make their destinations attractive. And mm. of course, if tourism money flows into local destinations, that again yeah. fosters growth in the local economy, employment, um, preserves cultural uh, you know, particularities, traits, habits, um, folklore and so forth. But there are other sectors, like if you look, look for instance, um, another thing that the Commission looks at very closely, which is goods of protected origin, which could be French wine, it yeah. could be Italian cheese, and so forth. Um, these are small businesses. They need to find, to, in order to thrive, find markets outside of their region, also, or, or often outside of their country. Mm. I found a recent stat that says that around 25 of all businesses by SMEs in Europe is cross-border business. Mm. So selling goods in a country um, where different from where it was being produced. And around 16% of digital advertising in Europe is transnational, i.e. targeting consumers in other markets. So these things come together. But then lastly, the last sector, which I found fascinating, is um, a case study I did on Italy. We've got many small, small, very small businesses in Italy. And there's a great story in the FT, actually, about a 70-year-old Thai manufacturer in the beautiful village of Bellagio at <laughs> Lago di Como, who for the first time at the, at the, uh, at the prior age of 70 was using search engine optimization <laughs> to get his business going. Wow. Right? Um, and he was amazed to see results come in. Mm. And there were many examples, uh, studies by PwC reporting from by financial newspapers, how entire regions of Italy uh, in the pandemic were kind of um, rejuvenated by a forced rapid transition mm. to digital. And last point on this, um, if you look, for instance, at um, eyewear, glasses, they're usually being produced 
um, in specific towns and regions where there is kind of a a monoculture in terms of what businesses do. Everyone in these towns works on this one thing. It could right. be could be handbags for fashion. It could be eyewear and so forth. That of course needs to be sold. Meaning. Bottom line, if there's no targeted advertising, no way to sell it, it has wider knock-on effects on the socio-economic fabrics of very, very specific places. And in all these ideological debates, targeting is bad, it's surveillance, capitalism, mm. and so forth, these wider things are omitted. And I think that is a really, really grave omission. It's, it's fascinating how you sort of push down the first domino and you see that sort of ripple effect in terms of particularly something like tourism, particularly given the climate we're in now where everyone's desperate to recover. They're just coming off, uh, you know, different red lists for different countries, you know, rejoicing and could be in a time where you can't do it. And this very obvious thing that's just struck me that um, of all the uh, SMEs that are trading with uh, different parts of Europe, just the very simple thing of identifying the country someone's in so you can adapt the language. I mean, you wouldn't be able to do that uh, in a world where you couldn't have targeted advertising, which would be bonkers. I mean, uh, yeah, it's literally just dawned on me. And this is where um, I think the term targeted advertising um, um, paints the practice mm. uh, as um, more you know, intrusive yeah, than it yeah. is. If we use the term personalization mm. or addressability, there's a positive connotation there. There's a notion of providing a service. Whereas the, you know, the term targeting um, doesn't sound that friendly. Yeah. But um, if we talk about this notion of personalization in a second, I think you made a very good point about the languages. Um, many people, millions of people share a language. So adjusting an ad to something like this um, is not really intrusive. And we need to bear in mind, I think personalization, in particular by regulators and policymakers, is often misunderstood. Yeah. They think about personalization or targeting as some kind of the equivalent of a digital drone strike. Mm. Um, but marketers are not interested in James or in Daniel or in any individual person. Yeah. They're interested in users as manifestations mm-hmm. of a category that they want to target. So um, although ads are being personalized, the interest of the marketer isn't in you or me as a person, but just in groups that we belong to. That's a fundamental misunderstanding, which I think paints the notion of targeting in a worse light than it should be painted in. Yeah, uh, you're totally right. And there is a stat in the paper, a a fascinating one around the premium attached as well to personalised advertising, which says to me that marketers um, identify that it has more relevancy, therefore they're willing to pay more for it. I think it's it's two euros more or something like that that they're willing to pay than if it had no targeting at all. So, you know, uh, it's not it's not taking away, it's actually additive, it's actually making the advertising work better, hence advertisers are willing to pay more for stuff that works. Yeah, there, there, there are a range of academic studies out there. Um, Often the issue with some studies is that um, they take a very small sample or that the academics don't really know how the real-world targeting environment looks like. So you have some studies that have um, different results. Mm. Um, But um, there is a a broad consensus that if applied correctly, um, targeting delivers huge value. Um, We see other studies that say, well... um, um, you know, some third-party data providers um, 
don't don't really work out and so forth and you know even demographic targeting doesn't work but that's mostly an application error so if we remove that bias we can see that um, if applied correctly targeting actually depending on the business case um, works really well and um, I think those marketers understand it best who move away from um, CPM and click-through metrics to real business results Mm. those who have the right metrics in place and have a real purchase journey um, mapped out and understood, they can see the value. Uh, and more often than not, it is SMEs, direct-to-consumer brands, because they're not of the scale where they've got a department over here doing advertising and a department over here measuring the sales. They're kind of one in the same. We, we work with a, uh, a British D2C brand called Tails.com. They make uh, dried dog food. Um, and... Uh, two interesting things one they they don't see a difference between brand and dr as many others do so it's not a performance channel it's also they don't sort of see it as not being able to do branding and they literally have their finger on the pulse they they put some money in and they do some advertising and instantly seeing the effect that it has they have a real handle on how that's working they're not interested in cpms or click-through rates or the vanity stuff is it shifting more product and are people coming back and lifetime value and, and that kind of thing? So it's it's ironic that it's those smaller businesses actually that really, really get it and really value the personalised bit. I mean, Tails probably wouldn't want to target anyone who hasn't got a dog. I mean, that's just, you know, doing television or broad stroke stuff is going to have so much wastage. They're only interested if you've got a dog. Indeed. Anyway. I mean, if, you, if you're like a large CPG brand, uh, mm. household item where everybody stocks there. Totally. Um, you wouldn't need um, um, such a granular targeting. But in many cases with new brands, you do need that. And as you say, um, targeting isn't necessarily bottom of the funnel advertising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but in particular, when we look at social commerce, a massive trend sweeping over from China, and we expect that around 15, 15 billion euros of incremental social commerce spend are coming in 2021 wow. to Europe and US combined. Um, if we see that, we see this conflation of brand and performance or brand formance, that's a big term, right? Um, where <coughs> you have the exposure and the product introduction and the call to purchase at the same time. Of course, that wouldn't work for everybody, mm. but I think it's a very important trend that acknowledges that um, targeting is more than the kind of than last click attribution yeah. or um, um, the last kind of instrument you use before you, before you run um, a big um, kind of run on network brand campaign. I, I love the. Um the point on social commerce you talked a bit about china there it it feels apparent to me that if um if the digital services act in europe were to be implemented tomorrow and you weren't able to do personal targeting um europe's ability to compete on a stage with you know companies based on the west coast and of course um uh, those coming also from from china etc i mean it would really really hamper european not just uh, advertisers we talked about but also those those whole bunch of in- incredible digital businesses in europe just just couldn't compete on the same level. There are lots of contradictions between um, implementations of the of the DSA, and there are a couple of drafts out there, on the one hand, and then the industrial policy mm. and transformative vision that the European Commission has on the other, right? So you see in sectors not related to advertising, the Commission talk a lot about personalization. It's the holy grail which <laughs> they strive towards. 
even in the media space, content personalization. But as soon as the word comes to advertising, the term personalization is replaced with targeting, mm. and suddenly you got um, a fierce lobby that says, no, this is bad. But there are two sides of the same coin. If we want to have in Europe, including the UK, mm-hmm. a competitive um, landscape of indigenous players in that you know, are conquering the UK, the European market, but also the global market, we need to give these companies the ability to, to, to thrive. And that means acquiring customers, managing churn, mm. upselling customers, and so forth. And for that, digital advertising is pivotal. So digital advertising for these um, new unicorns or in, in, in a sense um, flagships of European digital transformation. Yeah. Um, for them, advertising isn't an afterthought at the bottom of the balance sheet, but it stands, it's essential. It's essential for growth mm. and for driving sales. It's of strategic importance. And if we kill personalization, we also, in a sense, undermining the European Commission's and other regulators' own uh, initiatives to make Europe a thriving hub for the digital economy that can compete with China and the US. Yeah. And the last point on this. So if you go through the SEC filings or kind of other public company reports of some of these kind of recently launched companies, right, even in the US, right, think of a um, think of a Bumble, think of a, uh, a Deliveroo, yeah. um, think of a Delivery Hero um, um, in Berlin and so forth, they, they spend a very high proportion of their revenue on advertising. And these companies, if we look at the, in marketing, if we look at these companies and as, as a group, on average, they spend about 22% um, of their gross revenue on marketing, which is extremely high, <laughs> only if I compare this to some data from Deloitte, only the CPG companies, the classic ones, with 24%, spent more than that. Wow. So these are high mm. spenders, and they need to spend because of the reasons we just discussed. Uh, and actually, the, the, there's an irony in uh, brands like Bumble, Deliveroo, who have very sophisticated algorithms so that they can personalize an experience for you without thinking about the advertising. But of course, you know they're, they're great at this stuff. They're great with data. They have incredible talent who can do it. Um, Two more things I wanted to um, to finish on. Um, there's a there's a really salient point, and I was astounded by the stat on it. But you talk about publishers, and you talk about um, you know maintaining a, a free you know quality journalism. T- talk to us a bit about how you would see publishers um, uh, being affected by something like this. Of course. Advertising is a core revenue stream for publishers. If we look at a global um, at a global scale, the vast majority of ad revenue for publishers is still um, analog, not paper. But of course, in markets like the UK and in Europe, we see many publishers which are digital first, also in their in, in their ad funded models. Um, they are about the quality of their context, the quality of their readers, the quality of the attention. But they, of course, need to provide instruments that allow marketers to target. And that could be based on context, which is coming now, but, of course, also based on um, user properties, behavioral patterns, demographic patterns, and so forth. And we all know how the media sector is already um, 
under siege with competition uh, for attention and so forth, if we took away the ability to mm. conduct any form of targeting, it would be extremely hard for these companies to refinance themselves. Mm. And of course, all of them, or many of them, are looking at now at multi, multi-tiered revenue models, um, membership, subscription, advertising. But some people are saying, well, then they should just go down the subscription route. Yeah, what's so, the appetite for that in Europe? Um, but well, the thing is, for many, it's not possible. You need to have something extremely unique and compelling that people are willing to pay for. Mm. And on the other hand, not, not everybody can afford to pay. So if you remove a viable advertising model, mm. you're also um, intervening indirectly into the public sphere, meaning that information can't flow freely anymore and premium information is um, hidden behind a paywall. Mm. That's argument number one. Number two, um, publishers are at the forefront of driving first-party strategies now in the post-third-party cookie world, which actually, potentially, if they execute it well, allows them to, kind of, I think, thrive more yeah. in the digital yeah. world than before. This is a moment for publishers mm-hmm. to really capitalize on. And login data and subscription data, it's not an antidote to advertising, but these are things that can actually inform this first-party data, which again then in turn is being used for advertising. Mm. So intervening in, you know, with ideological arguments in the ability to do targeting outright is really catching um, publishers at a very bad moment and it, um, in the history and also it undermines their ability to really set themselves up to compete head-on in this extremely new data regime with the post-third-party cookies we're facing um, as of um, as of 2020, uh, 2023. And uh, uh, I guess that leads me on to the question, um, which is a speculative one, is uh, what is it that the um, <clears throat> those who are pushing this through the, the DSA, what, what's that kind of end game? What, what do they envisage the internet to be like? Because I'm sort of preaching to the converted here, and of course <clears throat> many people listening to this podcast will appreciate the sort of status quo of all of the things that are an ad-funded internet funds, whether that's, you know, searching for somewhere to go in Google Maps or, you know, free content, you know, attitudes in the UK alone. People are okay with the status quo. Okay, they don't love the ad experience sometimes. Uh, That's on us to make it better. But they get that they get something incredible for free and they wouldn't want to pay for it. Um, What what does the world look like? What's the kind of the end game, I guess, of those driving... Uh, uh, driving a blanket ban. Uh, uh, what is it? I wish I could ask them this directly <laughs> because I'm very confused myself. I can read in public statements and between the lines, and I don't think most of them look that far. They don't have an end game on the horizon. Mm. Um, they just have the notion in mind that targeted advertising is surveillance capitalism, ergo evil, and needs to be banned. <laughs> it's a very, very insular view Mm. that doesn't really look at the wider repercussions. Probably someone will shout blockchain or something (laughs) else. But um, uh, um, overall, um, there isn't a master plan. Mm. And that's the the dangerous thing, that um, calls for a ban aren't accompanied with a tangible, empirically backed, and economically Mm. viable Mm. vision and roadmap of how the internet and its core constituents can refinance themselves and businesses can thrive. Yeah, incredible. Uh, 
Daniel, what an illuminating half an hour that is. The paper is fantastic. It's, of course, uh, available on the IB uh, Europe site. You could check it out there. There's an incredibly handy two-pager as well, which gives you the top line. I would encourage you to read it, uh, as you said, um, just because we are on this island and we feel like we're kind of out of it now. But by no means, we need to be interested and we need to be leaning into this. But thank you again for taking some time to join us. It was absolutely brilliant. Thank you. It was fascinating. The IAB UK podcast. Dr. Daniel Knapp from IAB Europe there. I mean, just fascinating to talk to him. What he says is so illuminating, so so expertly put, whilst at the same time just wearing his intelligence, which is incredibly obvious, you know, very, very lightly. I remember seeing him at the Global IAB Summit in London a few years ago and just blowing the room away with his depth of insight and I think his ability to look at things through a slightly different lens to all of us who were, you know, sort of inside this thing, he can somehow get some distance and and that enables him to look at things slightly differently. And of course, all of his experience comes into play as well. Incredibly frustrating, not to mention utterly terrifying to consider that the end game just hasn't been mapped out for those pushing for a blanket ban on targeted advertising. And, you know, what we could be left with is something that just doesn't work for media owners, platforms, publishers. You know, it doesn't work for advertisers and agencies and uh, creates a very different type of internet for people. You know, one where services, content, they're just not free. And I don't know, it all feels a bit lose-lose to me. Um, as I say in the interview, you can read the full paper on IAB Europe's site. And if one IAB podcast just isn't enough, you should definitely subscribe to their excellent pod two hosted by uh, their CMO, Helen. Uh, don't forget that we're into week two of Digital Upfront. So you can hear from YouTube, Yahoo, Amazon ads, Twitter, Facebook and Snap, who I should say have opted for uh, an in real life event. You can sign up to all the upcoming sessions at ibuk.com forward slash upfronts. Hope to see you uh, as part of some of those. But for now, thanks very much for listening. IAB UK, building a sustainable future for digital advertising.